and you saw the way they shot initially it was very survival and they were stocking up on dried noodles and and rice and bottled water and, and all those kind of survival type foods then after a couple of weeks we really saw it evolving that people realized well we can still get our food from from some pretty decent suppliers and and it has contributed to the rise and fall of civilizations from people who have spent their lives searching for it to today's modern conveniences every single one of us is a stakeholder in it g'day and welcome to humans of agriculture I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and welcome to episode 11. I hope you're keeping well, and as restrictions start to ease here in Australia, you enjoy the well overdue catch-ups with family and friends. Today we're chatting Chinese consumers, and who better to hear it from than Mark Tanner, the Managing Director of China Skinny. China Skinny are the world's most read weekly newsletter about marketing to Chinese consumers. My own fascination with China began when I headed over there in 2014 as part of my uni studies. One thing that struck me out was when we visited Weimu Foods, a pig farm in southern China. The whole business was digital. From the office, you could see the pigs in their pens, the workers in their paddocks, and this was the exact same live stream that the consumers could watch too. The scale, the stark contrast in society, but the opportunity really captured my attention. Today we're chatting about everything from the here and now to some of the opportunities for Australian exporters. You'll be reassured that Mark believes the midterm looks positive for Australia. The way we've handled COVID actually reassures that our systems and processes work. Backing our clean and green image is one of trust and transparency. COVID has opened up some new habits for the Chinese consumers too. New markets across tier three cities and some new behaviours. We've seen an increase in e-commerce right across the board and activities like cooking at home have, have risen as well. So how can Australian exporters and food and beverage products capitalise on these new opportunities? Well, you're just going to have to listen in to find out. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of, I suppose, what you do, but more so what China Skinny do in China as well? Yeah, well, great to be here, Ollie. Thanks, Thanks for having me on the show. So China Skinny, we are a marketing strategy, research, uh, branding, and new product development agency. Um, we work across 26 different categories, everything from tampons to uh, aviation through to auto. Um, but food and beverage is, is, a, is a massive part of what we do. It's, it's by far our largest category. And um, I guess we, we really try and kind of see things holistically. So there might be something that's relevant in the tourism or lifestyle or fitness industry. And um, we try and apply that to whatever category we're working on. Um, I guess we're most famous for our newsletter. Um, we get it's the most read globally on, on marketing to Chinese consumers. Um, so if, if you are interested in keeping up, it's on chinaskinny.com. And we've also uh, developed a whole lot of tools in-house that do all sorts of interesting data analysis. And we've developed some methodologies that we really try and um, deeply understand the consumers through some quite localized techniques. And I suppose on the, the China side, it's a massive market, a billion plus people. When we're talking about exporting food, Australian food and, and beverage products into China, like, where are those key markets they're going into? Yeah, it, it depends. Obviously, commodity, there, there's quite a bit going into most of the cities in China. 
Um, but if you are looking at branded, more premium branded stuff, it's definitely uh, concentrated around the tier one, increasingly tier two cities. And you're getting a little bit more out to the tier three and four, but it's still mainly those, those more sophisticated and, and much wealthier um, high tier cities. And I suppose that, that tiering system, those tier one, uh, uh, the likes of your Beijing and Shanghai, what kind of population numbers are you looking at around those tier two cities? Tier two cities are generally around eight to 12 to 13, 14 million people. So by, by Australian standards, uh, <laughs> not to be sneezed at. Um, but again, just looking at the whole city, it, it's not really a true representation. If you look at a city like Shanghai, which is pretty much the population of Australia, it's got 25 million people. But a lot of that wealth is held by 11 million people. So the, the guys are what's called the hukos. So they, they, are Shanghainese and they have a lot more rights to things like education, to um, health and, and things. And they also own pretty much most of the property. So a lot of, a lot of the wealth that you see in China is, is, is property wealth. It's, um, there's been massive appreciation. A lot of them bought houses uh, when they were quite cheap in, in the late nineties. And, uh, and, and for a lot of them, the incomes, which are much lower than places like Australia, uh, are just supplementary spending money um, but, but yeah, okay. most of the wealth is in those cities which have high owner high property ownership um, and it's seen real appreciation and i suppose just at a high level in terms of the the breakdown of in china the the types of people that we're actually targeting what are the rough numbers of i suppose those people who sit in that high net wealth bracket but then also what's that bracket that's starting to come in and looking at australian products for instance yeah, so there's all sorts of measures and, and people talk about the middle class and, and I guess some people use a definition of owning a TV. Well, TVs in China are now pretty cheap. But if you look at the, the medium net worth of urban Chinese, so a little over half the population, it's 200,000 US dollars. And again, a lot of it's come from this property. And, but, but it's also worth looking at, even if they're making less and, and people will look at incomes, their priorities are quite different. So the amount that they spend, the share they spend on things like food and education and, and health, well, not health actually, but food and education is a lot higher than an equivalent in most other countries. So it's worth kind of looking wider than just the average income because there are all these other factors and, and drivers that uh, contribute to this, this real uh, demand from, from Chinese consumers for safe and healthy food. Yeah, because I suppose one of the things that I've been hearing over the, like in, in the Australian industry, for instance, if we just take beef as the prime example here, the marketing revolves around this whole Australia's got a clean, green image. Is that still relevant and is that kind of the key cut through or what is, what is it, say, for Australian beef that Chinese consumers are looking towards? Yeah, it definitely has a bearing and, and, and the, the safety is, is a big one. People... People in China inherently don't trust things. So there's been, they've just been slammed with so many scandals that they, they really want to know what they're getting is coming from a place that they can rely on every touch point in that supply chain. So, so the more confidence they have in that, the more likely they are to buy it. So obviously Australia is, is really well placed. Um, there's a lot of transparency in the supply chain and, and consumers really appreciate that. But clean and green is obviously very important. And, and um, but 
again, Australia doesn't really have the monopoly on that. There's, there's the likes of Canada. I think they're pretty clean and green and similarly New Zealand and Switzerland and Ireland and the UK and all sorts of other places that try and play on that safety health angle. But in many cases, Australia, particularly for beef, um, does have that real um, perceived advantage. It's got incredible recognition and, and, and preference. And so I suppose on the on that side of things, is it more so... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Like Australia, on top of the clean and green, I don't know if I'm actually a big fan of kind of that marketing, but is it more so the, yeah, it's the food safety, it's the quality assurance systems that we've got right from inside the farm gate through the supply chain that is what is creating that premium value for Australian beef? Yeah, it all helps. A lot of it is, is Australia was in early. Um, they did a really good job of, of um, getting in the right channels and just really building that reputation. was a lot of meat shifted out of South America, but it just doesn't have the same reputation. And a lot of it, they pretend it's Australian just because of the value of that brand Australia. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's about a number of things. And as I said before, you can't just claim you're clean and green and sell lots of, lots of product. You've got to come up with a little bit of a differentiator and, and, and also, uh, particularly if you want a premium, and also make sure you're, you're in the right channels and you're, you've got the right um, marketing strategy there. And so what I suppose are some of those new levels of, of marketing and what the consumers are demanding as they are starting to come onto the post-COVID world of what, yeah, what, what is it around food, for instance, and you can choose a category if it's easier, that's coming to market and the next opportunity there? Yeah, there's been, obviously, there's been a lot of factors, not just COVID, but you've got obviously the African swine flu and all sorts of crazy things going on that, that have impacted perceptions around protein. And you're starting to see a, a real emergence of um, the plant-based meat, fake meat. Um, and and that's that's been in China for a long time. There's, there's a lot of tofu eaters and things, but um you are seeing the the nascent um, rise of that, but overall, people still love um, their traditional sources, and, and beef has really grown a lot, as I'm sure any beef producer will know um, from the from the from the pork, um, which obviously dominates protein intake. But one thing that everyone or a lot of people are talking about that that's happened as a result of COVID is people were obviously locked in and, and it hit China like a, like a hammer, really jolted the place because they didn't really have that, that luxury of, of seeing what other countries are doing and, and any warning in the way that most other countries have. They just, they were the first, so they just got slammed with this, this COVID. And 
and you saw the way they shopped initially it was very survival and they were stocking up on on um new dried noodles and and rice and bottled water and and all those kind of survival type foods then after a couple of weeks we really saw it evolving that people realized well we can still get our food from from some pretty decent suppliers and and they were stuck at home so they were they were just they were looking to eat a bit better um so there's a real um in the past there's a real culture of eating out um, in china and, and anyone selling into the food service um, would notice there's been a, a real drop in that just because people are it's happening people restaurants are, are bouncing back a little bit but it's nothing to like it was people are a little bit worried about crowded public spaces and, and they're eating at home and and a lot of that's come from habit when during the lockdown um, consumers were had no other choice they were a little bit reluctant or very reluctant to order delivery which was a, a very big category just because they're worried about the chef having the, the virus or, or the delivery man having the virus and all these other things. So they really got into this home cooking and a lot of consumers didn't have the, weren't very good cooks before they didn't have their confidence or didn't even know how. So they've, a lot of them have taught themselves over this period or just got better um, through things like streaming videos and recipe website or WeChat sites or, or whatever it is. And I've learned that way. And you've seen a, a real increase in, in purchases of small appliances, so like countertop, uh, air fryers, toasters, all these things that a lot of Chinese households didn't have. But it's because they are now eating more at home, preparing more food at home. And a lot of them are actually kind of liking it. It's much more transparent. It's um, They think it's safer and, and it's also kind of fun for, for a lot of them. It's giving them a, a more purpose and a sense of worth and things. So you're seeing um, both cooking from scratch, but you're also seeing a real rise in those half-prepared meals. So the likes of um, Herma, the, the new retailer, Alibaba, a new retail supermarket, um, they saw a tenfold increase in, in those half-cooked meals uh, in the month after after the COVID was first, well, first officially recognised. Um, so you're... It is, yeah, this this that trend is is definitely really on on track, and as a supplier, as a as an Australian food and beverage supplier, it's it's really worth looking at how can we really accommodate those new habits. People cooking at home, what are the formats they're liking? How can we educate them? Tell them how to cook, maybe in an Australian style or or whatever, and and using some of these popular platforms to get through to them, such as short video and and live streaming and some of these other buzzwords uh, that we're hearing more and more. Yeah, the, the live streaming is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think uh, I'm keen to touch on it a little bit later around what they've actually been doing with getting farmers online. But here, I think in Australia as well, the, the live streaming side of things, particularly with chefs walking you through how to cook meals, for instance, um, has taken off during this time. And is that, so is that something that has happened around nearly influencer chefs coming online and walking them through how to become better cooks yeah. at home everyone is live streaming in china even even xi jinping the the president um he was he was wandering through some fields in in a northern province in china and um you're getting officials you're getting a lot of old school celebrities getting online you're getting um some of the the original entrepreneurs and things are, are everyone's getting on live streaming it was already on trend it was it was growing pretty rapidly over the last 
18 months, but it's just accelerated, gone up a couple of levels um, as a result of, I guess, people being stuck at home, seeking entertainment, seeking information. Um, and it's got a lot broader. So it was just about selling stuff, but now there's everything from live stream schooling to live stream fitness programs and all these different live streaming. So you're getting more of an appetite, more of a habit into watching live streaming. And, and obviously the infrastructure is improving all the time as a result of more demand from both consumers and, and live streamers. Um, it will drop down. People will have less time once things get back to normal, but, but I think it'll drop down to a level that was higher than it was tracking um, prior COVID. And so that, is that another one that is kind of across generations as well? So it's not just the, the younger consumers that are picking up on that? It's a really interesting question, Ollie. You, you, something that's been really fascinating over over the uh, COVID period was is just the change in demographics who are going online. Like previously, it was absolutely dominated by younger consumers. So when I say younger, that's under 30 or uh, at a push under 40. Um, but what's happened with, with COVID is people didn't really have a choice to do things like e-commerce um, to do any other way of shopping. So they had to get online and, and buy e-commerce things. And a lot of the barriers to e-commerce and, and the growth had been flattening out for the last couple of years in China. And there'd been these elusive older population and, and again, lower tier, tier three and below um, who were real laggards and getting online. Whereas the cities in China had some of the highest penetration rates in the world. And so you're getting these old people that had no choice and they're stuck at home with their kids. And so their kids are showing them how to use things like e-commerce and that real barrier to entry or barrier to using it is just not having the confidence or familiarity with, with these platforms, but out of, out of force, um, they had to pick it up. So a lot of them are now over that barrier and they realize, well, this isn't actually that hard to, to use. So you've seen a real shift in a lot, older consumers getting online. So if you look at pre-COVID, around uh, 49% of Chinese consumers were under 30, that were, um, sorry, were over 30, that were shopping online. So over 30 being old. And then by um, within a month, that 49% went up to 60%. Yeah, wow, that's... <laughs> Similarly with tier three, yeah, massive. Um, and, and similarly, tier, um, the lower tier cities that went from uh, tier three and below, I think it was around uh, about 50% and that went up to over 60%. So real shift in, in, in the, the, the number. And, and the numbers have grown as a result. They've really spiked in the last few months. But the, the great thing about that is it's, it's opened up these markets that were incredibly hard to reach. Um, Elderly would shop at the wet markets and the mom and pop stores and, and places like that where, and similarly level uh, tier three and below cities, the smaller cities are very regionalized retailers. Again, a lot of mom and pop stores. So it's hard as, a, as an Australian brand to come in and reach all of those people. Um, but but it is, it's now got a lot easier. We'll both reach them, allow them to sell and, and things like cold chain and, and, and the supply chains improving. And, and you're also getting um, just a much more, less fragmented market and, and channels to reach them. And so I suppose looking at more westernised countries like Australia and New Zealand, for instance, is that something where you think we're lagging in terms of 
actually uptaking that opportunity of the live stream, but also e-commerce has increased, but it's still, I feel like when I'm looking at what you guys are presenting in the weekly newsletters and looking back a couple of years where with the farmers coming online and selling their product basically from the paddock, is that something that you're surprised hasn't come into, uh, I suppose, a stronger following in in the Western countries like Australia and, and New Zealand? Um, not, I'm not that surprised and, and there's a number of reasons. And just to give it some context, e-commerce as a share of retail has jumped up to over a quarter. So it's, I think it's around 26, 27% of all retail is e-commerce, which everyone's talking about e-commerce and it's still, it's still not the majority and I don't think it will be ever, or if it is, it'll take a long time to get there. But um, it's it's if you look at Australia, I think it's around 11, 12%. So it's significantly larger share. But a lot of that comes down to two things. One is um, the infrastructure, just the retail and the physical retail space in, in China was quite a long way behind. You're getting some really world-leading, um, innovative new retail and, and technology and things happening now. But overall, it's not great and, and it's quite fragmented. Whereas Australia is obviously very mature, very established, and you've got some some pretty dominant players in the likes of Coles and Woolworths that, that are that are pretty good at holding on to their share. Whereas in China, it's, it's anyone's game. It's much more fragmented, and you've got a much more uh, digital, digitally engaged community or population, and particularly those younger ones. They just love digital stuff. Um, things like payments are incredibly integrated and, and you look at the numbers, they just 10 times or 20 times even what the US is for, for payments and things are just phenomenal. Everything's done digitally now. And so you've got this population that, that is really engaged with it and that's helped the infrastructure. So you can get delivery really cheap and you can get it, well, a lot of retailers will do it in 30 minutes. So there's just not this barrier to when you're buying things um, that, you, that you're going to, is it going to take a day? Is it going to, do I have to plan ahead four days, five days? It's like, think about it. You get that instant gratification. It gets delivered 30 minutes. That has slowed down a bit with COVID, but overall it's, it's, it's rapid. Wow. It's just, it's just a different level, isn't it? I remember I went to, I was part of Marcus Oldham when I was at uni there. We, we went over in a, to a China tour in 2014 and it's just, uh, we went to a, a pig farm, uh, Waymo Foods, I think it was, um, down down south there. And just like, the level of technology they had in this piggery, like it was, it was quite a large piggery, but they had every stall had cameras in it. Every paddock had cameras in it. And so not only could the business look at what was happening, but the consumer could actually log onto the website and see what was happening there as well. And that was, yeah, 2014. It was just like, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible what some of the things, in many ways, it's incredibly primitive. And you've got a lot of these um, one cow farms, these, these peasant farmers with a postage stamp plot, um, millions, of, millions of them that, that, are, that are farming incredibly inefficiently and, and meaning there's a very long supply chain before it gets to the consumer. Then you've got these corporate farms that are really what the government wants to just help them control and assure food safety and things. And they're investing in, in all sorts of blockchain just because a lot of consumers are, are demanding it. They want to know 
every step of the way where uh, what's been touching it, particularly that's it really accelerated again with COVID and getting some of the big retailers that are, that are really um, driving that likes of Sam's Club and things. And, and you, you've got all sorts of um, drones to, to, um, to put pesticides on the fields and, and a lot of things. The government's really investing a lot in smart technology, so smart cities, smart agriculture, all sorts of artificial intelligence and data-based um, decisions and all automated things. Because there's a couple of reasons. One, again, it, it helps um, the surety of the supply chain. And two, there's a lot of um, a lot of young kids don't want to spend time out in the farms. They've got a real problem with this aging population that farm farmers, rural people, don't make a third of what they make in a city. So uh, it's not that desirable. There's not the bright lights and and um, that you get in, in in the bigger cities. So they can't get young people to take over these farms. So they realise they do have to automate, and as a result, they're doing some pretty interesting. Um, technology there that's uh it's bloody interesting it leads to, to a couple of questions i want to ask on that and so i suppose around well there's something like 200 million farmers in china or something i think i was reading but so is that is it quite a steep shift change from these smallholder farms with larger corporates starting to to consolidate these farms and, and bring them under one roof or is it a slow moving beast at the moment to be honest it's it's slow they, i remember back in 2011 the government announced that they were going to have i think it was it was either a th- i think it was two-thirds of all farms they wanted to have this is dairy farms they wanted to have over 100 cattle and by 2013 i think it was something like 15 percent it was some really low number so yeah the government a lot of their plans and a lot of their objectives are met quite well but Farming is not one. It's just such a crazy balancing act because the, the the original communist party they they were all about everyone working off the land and sent all these people out to their little plots and communal style farming, and now they're turning around and realizing that's probably not the most efficient and and, a, and the right system for China. So, but they can't really go against um, these historic um, decisions and without it's just a really delicate political balancing act just because you have, as you say, 200 million farmers. <laughs> Nothing to be snoozed at. Yeah. And so I suppose is on the domestic, domestic food side, is that something that the, the smaller farmers are involved in with around these traceability platforms and marketing and such, or is that, is there a quite a significant gap in who's actually involved in the provenance and traceability side of things? Yeah, the, the smaller farms are still pretty uh, pretty primitive, but something that's happened, and, and again, as a result of COVID, is is you got a lot of these farmers that um, with with COVID everything kind of stopped, and so they couldn't get their their products out to consumers or out to the out to the markets, the wholesalers and whoever else, and so they were just rotting, and people needed food that was obviously the priority for, for any kind of purchases. And you saw that with e-commerce. They were the only things getting sold at the time. And so the e-commerce companies kind of put two and two together and said, well, let's help these farmers who have fruit and veggies and meat and whatever else, and let's get their products to consumers who are really demanding it and we'll look great and we'll look like we're doing all this corporate social responsibility. And so you got all these um, 
all these farmers doing that. And you've got a few pin-up live stream farmers that everyone loves and are buying lots of products. But as a share, it's still very low, and, and um, but they do get a lot of airtime. Okay, and that's through the likes of, I'm going to say it wrong here, but Taobao, the, the live streams, which has been around for a couple of years. Yeah, Taobao is the biggest of the live streams um, for e-commerce. But you've got, you've got the likes of Douyin, which is TikTok, and, and Kwaishou, which is the equivalent. And they both have, they've both got a lot of penetration now, particularly for those farmers and food sellers. Yeah, interesting. I suppose one thing I do want to jump back to there, you were just mentioning about the food security piece. And that's, I suppose, an area that we've seen um, quite a lot of heat on around, or even in Australia, it's been a conversation around what our capacity is to feed ourselves. But particularly in China, we're seeing um, large imports of US corn. Um, I think wheat was coming on the market there as well. What is the, the general goal and the sentiment here of the food security of China and, and what's happening there currently? Well, I think China realizes that, that they've got this this rising um, middle class that's eating a lot more calories, and and they although they're a massive food exporter, they they can't supply what they need. It's a little bit imbalanced, so they realize that in in the perfect world they'd have supply everything themselves, but they realize they can't. Um, so that that's worked really well for them. That well, really well for us exporters that they still need our stuff. But there is this perception that that um, particularly right now when when the world is imploding around them, China's looking outside and they're reading a lot of news about what what's going on in other countries. Some of it's fake, but they're saying, wow, this these other countries are getting places like North America and Europe. I wouldn't want to be buying tomatoes from Italy. I wouldn't want to be buying um, branded products from the US, although obviously there's been a big jump. Um, trying to fulfill their their trade trade agreement um, commitment with with the US has been a jump in beef and things, yeah. but from a a lot of that's commodity focused and and those branded branded um, products are still the likes of Australia have much greater edge over the likes of the US. They obviously pump their cows full of hormones and things, which is much more efficient and great for commodities. But the average consumer loves clean green unadulterated, uh, hormone-free. Um, some of those, we, we track a lot of keywords and buzzwords and claims and things um, and, and the premium people are paying for them. Yeah, and, yep. and those natural um, hormone-free type claims always do incredibly well in China. And so I suppose is that, is that what you feel is a, is a key strength and potentially a, a bit of a reassurance to with Australian beef in the Chinese market is our ability of authentic traceable non-hormone yeah, i think it's definitely a, a point of an advantage i, I wouldn't rest on it because obviously china's everyone's trying change. to sell stuff in china <laughs> but um but it's 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 a very good uh positioning play at the moment yeah okay and so i suppose on on that side of things are you is there any risks that you're seeing around australian products into china or i suppose on the flip side of that is there any given the current volatilities is there particular areas where you're looking at and seeing a lot of opportunity? Yeah, things like healthy, and, and we've seen a real spike in, in health-related products, so whether it be vitamins, and obviously Australia uh, does really well on that, but, but just healthy food, we've seen a, a real uh, spike in that. 
and um, even things like immunity. We've seen all sorts of immunity claims have just gone through the roof, even on products that you wouldn't expect to have. So it's a case of the opportunity is is really um, making sure you're in, depending if you want to sell retail, and right now retail is a pretty good place to be. But again, a risk of that is you're getting a lot of these traditional uh, B2B sellers, so a lot of food service, a lot of guys um, supplying hotels and et cetera, realize that their market's not what it once was. So they're looking at pivoting to the more lucrative retail markets. But these guys are used to uh, playing on pretty low margins. Um, so they're coming in relatively cheap um, compared to a lot of uh, more established retailers. So it's a case of um, that is a potential risk. Is obviously as, as for abattoirs and, and a bunch of barley growers would know, there's, there's political risks. But overall, the, I, I think the medium to long term is, is looking pretty strong for, for Australia. One, we've got a great reputation. We've held this COVID pretty well compared to a lot of countries, which, which has the halo effect of, again, it's just re- reassuring the systems and the health of the country is, is really positive. And you're just getting this consistently growing, wealthier um, consumer population that is more selective in what they're buying. They're, um, I think something really, on a bit of a tangent here is if you look at any other country in the world that spends a lot on food, they have a really significant cottage industry in, in their own country. There's people really like at that premium end of the market really like to support um, the, the local guys that are boutique and, and um, artisan and, and whatever else. But China is quite different in that way. Like when you start getting quite wealthy, you're going to want to buy imported um, rather than that local movement. But there is a, there is a really strong local movement and, and some of the operators are incredibly good at what they do. But overall, as a share, there's still that perception that that foreign imported healthy, particularly from places like Australia, is um, is the way to go. And you don't get that so much in, in other countries as, as the same percentage. And I suppose on that too, is it, are they putting the, the health and nutrition aspects of the food in front of, say, the sustainability claims? Obviously, if you start to, depending on if you're yeah, looking for a more nutritious uh, product, you are starting to look further afield. Is that front in mind for, for Chinese consumers? It's a good question. It, it, it's a lot of people have been hoping it would be for a long time, but it, it's still very um, underdeveloped relative to most mature, most Western markets. Most people, you, you do all sorts of surveys and everyone will say, yeah, they want to support sustainable sustainability, etc environmentally friendly but in reality their behavior doesn't reflect that so consumers are all about what's in it for me um you get that degree everywhere but more so in china they couldn't care less about well they could to a little bit but not as much as other consumers about the greater world um there's this i guess if you look a little deeper they are one of 1.4 billion other people and and they think well what difference can i make that's the government's job to, to really handle all that stuff. Um, whereas there's much more of an individual accountability um, element in, in other markets. So sustainability hasn't flown in the way that, that it has um, just that bigger picture, save the world type thing. But where sustainability is, is really positive, environmentally friendly, et cetera, 
is people associate if it's environmentally friendly, if it's sustainable, it's much more likely to be healthy for me. Um, they haven't pumped chemicals in, they haven't, um, the land they're using is not filthy, all that kind of stuff. And so that does hold some, some clout. And, and we've seen it surprisingly with COVID because um, we track a lot of trends and keywords and themes and things at the skinny. And the green sustainability has actually increased quite a bit, whereas in a lot of other countries in the world, people are, are more concerned about the here and now than this wider sustainability movement that they were pre um, this, this crisis. And so, um, and again, that's, that's people seeing these, this food that's environmentally friendly and stuff has been safer. And also there's been a bit of social media chatter about this is mother nature's revenge, this COVID because we're, we're abusing the world. And um, so there's been a little bit of a, a niche movement and, and that that's again, trying to support that environmental. Yeah, okay. it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a big and complex piece that that's really interesting around that sustainability piece. I suppose it's yeah, been good to just get a bit of an insight into what's happening in China now and, and what has been happening. And I suppose that what I've gathered out of it is that Australia is still in quite a strong position to keep moving forward with China. It's obviously such a big key market for us in food, food fibre as well. So, Yeah, there is obviously that. Uh, that rising nationalism, patriotism, whatever you want to call it, um, which is does make it a little bit harder for for exporters. But again, that impacts some categories more than others, and things like food and beverage um, safety trumps everything. So it's um, yeah, it's, it, it may be a little bit of a rocky road um, for some Australian brands that are in other categories. Um, but yeah, food and beverage is, is, I think the outlook's pretty promising. Yeah, lovely. Oh, well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, Mark. I suppose people can subscribe to, and I had no idea you guys were the, the world's largest marketing information weekly newsletter for China. That's I don't know how it happened, Ollie. I'm pretty happy about <laughs> it. I guess the reason we started it was just there was nothing out there that gave any kind of really chunky, transparent, and, and kind of to the point information. So we thought, well, if we can't find it, let's let's try and do it ourselves. And I guess that's resonated with a lot of people and, and got a lot of people um, reading it. Yeah, it's unreal. It's, it's good because it's so succinct. I actually, a couple of Wednesdays ago when there must have been a public holiday over there, I was like, oh, where's the bloody newsletter this week? <laughs> <laughs> you, you let me down. No, I, uh, I saw it the week before, so... Was it always a fascination that you had with China or what led you to focus there solely? It's a good question. I, no, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I do find China absolutely fascinating, particularly at this period in history. But I, um, I, I guess I, I'm just curious by nature. I, I lived in North America, and I lived in Europe and spent a year in Africa. So it's kind of the last stop. And I, I guess I came home and I met a young lady and she wanted to do her, overseas travel and we both thought China was was pretty interesting and getting more and more relevant and so we uh we both jumped on a plane and uh, went to Beijing and studied up there and that was kind of how it all began that's really cool oh I suppose so if people have got questions for you whereabouts can they find you Mark uh, so the best way is, is chinaskinny.com um it's it's got a, a whole lot of things you can subscribe to the newsletter and 
a lot of information and some wacky tools that can, um, I guess, help provide some perspective for China. And my email address is mark, M-A-R-K, at chinaskinny.com, which is another good way. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks for joining us. You can get in touch with Mark at mark at chinaskinny.com or via his website. Their weekly newsletter comes out on a Wednesday and it's truly fascinating what they come up with. We'd love for you to submit any questions to us at Humans of Agriculture or you can reach out to me directly at ollie at humansofagriculture.com. Look after yourselves and we look forward to chatting next week.